0: Matthew nine eighteen through thirty four. Matthew nine eighteen through thirty four. Um, those are planned thoughts. Don't do those pastoral kind of thoughts all that often. Um, so it wasn't in reaction to any kind of rant or some post that I saw. Um, we just need to understand because I think it actually applies very much to our text. Now, what we come to today in nine eighteen through thirty four is this third set of three miracles. We're actually going to deal with all three miracles today. I'll tell you why in a moment. If you remember back, and just take your Bibles and look back at the first part of chapter 8, okay? so at the close of the Sermon on the Mount, we looked at chapter 8. We had the first set of miracles, really in verses 1 through 17 of chapter 8, where he cleanses a leper, um, the faith of a centurion, this Gentile that he says he found greater faith than he's seen in all of Jerusalem. And then He heals many, in particular a sick woman who has a high fever. But many others were brought, including those oppressed by demons. All in that first set of miracles, really just to, to show us that his He reaches the outcast. Like women and Gentiles, they were societal outcasts, particularly those that were sick. But then also those oppressed by demons. Those were untouchables. They would have caused at least someone to be unclean, and yet... As Christ gets his hands so called dirty in the lives of the outcast, he himself does not become impure. He starts to introduce the nature of his authority in doing these miracles. And then we have a break after that, and you see that in the cost of following Jesus in verse 18 through 22. That's the first break in between the miracles is this calling to discipleship where he really says, look, you're going to have to give up the comforts of home and also the regular worldly duties, even caring for your family in the way that you thought you needed to care for your family. You're going to have to let all these things go for the purpose of following me. But because he has the authority to do all that he's already done to make this call, it makes sense, and yet it's still really, really hard. But he has the authority to do so. The second set of miracles, the three miracles, starts there in verse 23 of chapter 8. And it goes through chapter 9, verse 8. So you have the Jesus calling the storm, calming the storm. He heals two men with demons. And then he heals the paralytic in 9, 1 through 8. In all of these, he really shows even his greater extent of his authority over wind and waves, two different aspects of nature. He shows that authority right off the bat. And then again, his authority over those who are demon possessed to show his authority over the supernatural realm. And then in this really transitional, beautiful, uh, healing of the paralytic, how his authority over all these things and performing these miracles extends and really shows us the purpose of the authority. It extends to this God only type authority of forgiveness of sin to the paralytic. Even before he had healed him physically, said, your sins are forgiven. Because Christ is able, and he does, it is full and final. It's a beautiful picture of his authority exercised to relieve sin and sinners. And then it's broken up again by Christ's call to discipleship, particularly the example of calling Matthew himself, starting in verse 9 and going on through 13. But also we have this question of fasting, which still relates to a call to discipleship, because it relates to John's, the John the Baptist disciples coming with a question about fasting, and Christ really in this example speaking of the bridegroom and speaking about new new wine skins and new wine put in those, and also the patch on the garment. That basically in all this shows that Christ is both purpose and pleasure, meaning Christ as the bridegroom is the one that the disciples are to take great pleasure in. He defines their status, or even their response. So basically, while he's there, they're not going to mourn and fast as if he's not there. They're going to rejoice, and they're going to eat, and they're going to do really hard things, and they're not going to have the comforts of home, but Christ himself defines them, which is the nature of a disciple, is that we are defined by the one that we follow. We're not defined by our circumstances, but the one in whom we follow in the midst of those circumstances. In our present circumstances, while we wait on Christ to return, does indeed say this is a season we should fast. This is a season that we should indeed long and even have a sense of mourning and loss that he's not here. We see it in the headlines. We see it all over the place as we've already prayed and discussed. But it's a longing for the bridegroom to return. Again, part of that discipleship. And now we find ourselves at this third set of miracles. And we find that with three different accounts going on. We're going to look at all three of these today as opposed to taking each one like we've done in the past. And the basic reason is because these miracles seem to run together with a near continuous kind of action. They're very, very close. They almost overlap in in moments. And the purpose of them all seems to be really, really clear. So we're going to deal with all of these today. Now... I'm going to read another text to you before we actually read our present text. In Numbers chapter 5, don't go to it. I just want you to listen to me. But I want you to jot down this text. Numbers 5, 1 through 10. Listen to what the Lord says to Moses regarding the law. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous, or has a discharge and everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. You shall put both male and female putting them outside the camp that they may not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell. And many of these things are not even things that they necessarily controlled or made choices of. If they were leprous or if they had A hemorrhage like this woman does, a menstrual hemorrhage that we see in the account today. Couldn't really control that. But nonetheless, or those who'd been caring for one who was dying, like the daughter that we'll talk about briefly today, then dies. Then all of a sudden you didn't know it, but you actually touched the dead. It doesn't really appear to be sinful, but it is unclean. Because God dwells there in purity, there has to be cleansing. There has to be a separation. But then listen to what he says after this. After the people of Israel did this and the Lord spoke to Moses saying this, speak to the people of Israel when a man or woman commits any of the sins that people commit by breaking faith with the Lord and that person realizes his guilt, he shall confess his sin that he has committed and he shall make full restitution for his wrong, adding a fifth to it and giving it to him to whom he did the wrong. But if a man has no next of kin of whom to make restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution for the wrong shall go to the Lord for the priest. In addition to the ram of atonement with which atonement is made for him, and every contribution, all the holy donations of the people of Israel, which they bring to the priest shall be his. Each one shall keep his holy donations. Whatever anyone gives to the priest shall be his. So as God establishes the law and shows us the law there in Numbers 5, we understand that there is impurity just by the nature of the the fallen effects of sin like death and disease and other things like that. But then there's also volitional sin that has to be atoned for and cleansed. All of it has to be dealt with because God dwells there. And He says to put them outside of the camp. Now we know... That what we've been charged with is a gospel in which Christ went literally outside of the camp, outside of the city, to a place where those who are separated and reviled would go. A place like Golgotha and would be crucified to cleanse people of all their sin and sin effects. So that they would become a dwelling place for God. This is what we see in Ephesians two nineteen through 22 And then we see in the Sermon on the Mount, in chapters 5, verse 17, how Christ says, I didn't come to abolish the law and all these requirements, but to fulfill them. They didn't necessarily understand what all the fulfillment meant. But to be a substitute. To be the one who could be cleansed where we could not be. To be the one who could purify sin where there would not be enough rams to die. And enough priests to live to satisfy us for eternity. And he becomes that. He actually does this fulfillment in time before his death on the cross. To see the fullness and the satisfaction that when he's on the cross and he says it is finished. Everything he did in part Becomes done in whole on the cross, and because he was raised from the dead, it's done for good. So keep that in mind when I read this text this morning, chapter nine, starting in verse eighteen. Let's start with the first healing account in this third set. While he was saying these things to them, and these things basically had to do with the wedding and the wine skins and the old garments and the patchwork, while he's there at Matthew's house. A ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. Instantly. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the the report of this went throughout all the district. And that verse 26 really shows the overriding purpose of all three of these accounts. It's about the publicity of Christ's authority and his work going out to the greater district or the public world. And the continuous action seems the overlapping action with the previous thing seems to really show this is kind of a a crescendo. First of all, this raising of the dead. As this accounts, why he was saying these things, a ruler enters into the home. This is a Jewish ruler. We know him to be Jairus, okay, according to Mark and Luke. He was a magistrate. He comes into Matthew's house and kneels. This is a ruler in their city, comes into a a tax collector's house, which would have been questionable, and kneels before Christ. A ruler kneels before Christ and says, Come and heal my daughter. It's a beautiful picture of submission, really. And desperation. And an image of his faith. He's submitting to the lordship and the rule of the one there. Now, we we know that he doesn't necessarily understand all that he's doing. But he has seen and heard enough of the authority of Christ and experienced a devastating effect that his own dead religion will not help. And he runs to Christ and says, Help. Please. Please. Now, in the other accounts it says that they are that she is sick, and then in the process she dies. But we don't need a mince on how the different accounts are recorded to us, is that ultimately we know that this young daughter was dead. And the magistrate says, Christ, she is dead. Only you can heal her. Jesus gets up and goes, and so do his disciples. That's what it says. Verse 19 And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. They continue to go along wherever he goes, watching whatever he does. And so along the way, this woman who has hemorrhaging, menstrual hemorrhaging of some type, we don't know. But this would have made her ceremonially unclean. There are crowds constantly pressing in around Christ because he's already done quite a bit of a show in their eyes. And they just heard that a girl is dead and they want to see this one. But it's also his disciples. They're all pressing in around Christ. This woman who is unclean, who is an untouchable in society, squeezes through the crowd and reaches out to just touch the hem of his garment, thinking, if I can just touch the fringe hem of his garment, then that healing power perhaps will come upon me. But that's not what happens. Yes, she does reach out. But what happens? Christ stops. He stops. And takes notice. He had just left the home of someone who who would have been considered an outcast among Jews, really, and Romans, because he was a tax collector. He robbed Jews, even though he was a Jew, and he gave to Romans and took money that, even though he gave Romans their due, they saw him as a sellout. He leaves one unclean place, basically, to enter into another, which is to pay attention to an unclean woman. He was touched by her, yet he remains unstained yet deals with the impurity. This is what Christ does with sin. This is what Christ ultimately does on the cross. He took the penalty, the ultimate penalty of all uncleanness, bears it, and yet for Himself remains pure. On His way to a dead little girl's house, He stops to deal with an unclean woman. You know, I thought more than once when I was studying this, if he was a pastor of a Western church, there would be people texting him all day long saying, what are you doing? Go there and help that family that's mourning. Why are you messing with this undesirable? He stops. As far as we know, dad is still here. Christ heals her. They don't necessarily know that she's been healed. We don't know that in the account, except that that's the record of what is known here From Matthew's record, we know the words would be true, but I'm just saying in time, they don't necessarily know that there was healing. She'd been unclean, but we know that she was healed. She was made well. In the course of going to minister to the home of those who were mourning, which helps us see that Jesus is never late. He finally arrives at the destination. The funeral procession basically had already begun. They would often be these professional mourners, usually musicians who would come in and they would play laments. She had already been dead long enough that those arrangements could be made and people were mourning her loss and basically the long funeral process had begun. Christ drives them out. They mock Him. They laugh. What? You know, whether it's their job or whatever, but they knew her to be dead. What are you doing? When they'd been put outside, he goes in, took her by the hand. What does he do? Touches again uncleanness. Handling the dead. We already read it in Numbers. We already read he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He touches the dead, but does not himself become unclean. And then actually then brings life. This is a picture of what he does with our sin. In this final set of three miracles, in a sense, we see all of the miracles prior kind of coming to bear in this last set, this last group. He says that she's sleeping. Look, this is not because they have misdiagnosed. We do know him to be the great physician, but he's not saying, oh, she's actually. No, they look, they they knew life and death much better than you and I do. They dealt with it much more readily than we do in our own extended or in their own extended generational households, more than we do. She was dead. This is a statement of perspective of what it means for Christ to speak into the life and wake them to a new reality. And that's what he does. The result is understood. Verse 26, and the report of this went through all the district publicity goes out. He doesn't say, don't tell. It just goes out. It's natural. It was a beautiful, incredible miracle. He had just raised someone from the dead. Yeah, going to talk. The point of this is how we see Jesus rules the living and the dead. Even in this process, the woman's hemorrhaging, it could most likely lead to death, but she was still alive. She was able to walk and but in the middle of him dealing with, though, with one who was actually dead and to begin to, then to bring comfort to a father and a ruler in society, he deals with someone who's alive but still is an untouchable, an outcast, one who is suffering. Christ in this account shows he is ruler of the living and the dead. But we also see the images in these miracles of what disease, how disease is likened to sinfulness. Because his authority, as we already see in how he dealt with the paralytic in the first part of chapter 9, That every miracle that he performs shows us this parallel of the fact that he has authority to forgive sin. But also that disease and fallenness and the effects of sin is likened to these diseases. So we know then that faith in Christ alone brings true healing. Words from Christ is all that's necessary for healing. No added balms or ointments. We know that healing makes people talk. You've seen someone fide, healed. You're going to talk. In our ways, we may do it in a more kind of logical sense of maybe we find out that the cancer is actually fully in remission. There is no sign anywhere. That's going up on Facebook and we're going to report. We will. Rightly so. and We should celebrate. We should like and comment and do all kinds of things. Being spiritually raised from the dead is more miraculous than remission of cancer because without being morbid, if the cancer doesn't get you, something else will. When you've been delivered from your sin, you have eternal life. Sin isolates us from God like those who are rejected and unclean. Sin is too dirty for men's religion to to clean up and even men's... Diagnostic approaches and prescriptions cannot heal sin sickness, although they try. Sin is removed only by the one who could bear the sin, but remain sinless himself. And that's Christ. Let's look at the account of the blind man that's healed are the two blind men. Verse 27. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. There you go again. Publicity. Jesus just keeps going. He keeps on moving along. That's the language. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men are following him. You can imagine the, the groping or the being led by others, but they're following the crowd. They're following what they had been hearing and the miracles. They'd only heard reports of miracles, but what they heard was enough to cause them to believe. That Christ could do such a thing. Why? Because they could not see it with their own eyes. As they followed him, they called out to him and they cried out for mercy. But how did they do it? It's interesting. Have mercy on us, son of David. Son of David. Now, it's not crazy uncommon to use that phrase. But because Matthew is writing particularly to a Jewish audience, for him to have taken note of these blind men saying this, I mean, this is the most messianic term that we have for Christ. He is the rightful heir in the line of David. Matthew starts with this in the begets That Christ is in the rightful line of, D- of the Davidic throne. That's promised for the Messiah, but also the one who all the covenant promises made to Abraham are pointing to. That's also part of the Messianic line. But they would have associated it mostly with being son of David. And they call out to him. Christ responds. But listen to this in Isaiah 35, 4 through the beginning of 6. Okay, Isaiah 35. This is part of the future hope of Israel... Part of the future deliverance that God will bring through His promised one. Listen. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. He says to take heart, to have courage. This is beautiful because back in verse 22 with the woman, he tells her, take heart. He says, be of courageous joy. Isaiah prophesies. That's what the Messiah will say. And in the process, he will do what? Heal the blind. He will open up deaf ears. He will release the tongue of the mute, which is actually what happens next. After he heals the blind men through demonic release, he relieves The tongue to speak from one who was mute, who couldn't say a word. And now he's been called the son of David again and again and again from all these angles. Matthew is saying, this is the Messiah. And all these things, these acts of authority that he's exercising is showing that he is the one that was prophesied about. Even if they didn't put everything together, it doesn't matter. It's being recorded for us for all of time to know that this is indeed the Messiah of God. He is proving it in his actions, but it's still leading somewhere else. See, what Isaiah even prophesies and speaks of is that his judgment and his mercy is really what's ultimately going to happen. In the process, he's going to relieve the blind. He's going to relieve the deaf. He's going to cause those who are mute to speak and the lame to walk. Jesus is doing messianic things in the process of doing the ultimate messianic thing. Which is to redeem his own. So they're walking along. And says they. Christ heal, heal us. He touched their eyes according to their faith. Their eyes were opened. But Jesus warned them in the process. See to that no one knows about this. After saying, do you believe? They say, yes. But then he says, don't speak. And it's almost like they don't believe him. So they go and speak. Go figure. Go figure. They are right in the sense that their smallness of faith to believe that he is able. And they say, yes, Lord. And they were healed. And he says, it's according. In according to your faith, be it done to you. Again, we are reminded that, look, small faith counts. He's not talking about according to the measure of your faith as far as your faith is strong enough now. No, according to, meaning in line with your faith, and the faith was in line with the object who is Christ. Christ, Son of David, have mercy on us. Christ, calling upon him to save and to have mercy was enough. And he relieved their blindness. But you know what? The story actually shows us that their faith wasn't all that great because they go and tell where Christ said to keep your mouth shut. They still receive the miracle. We don't hammer them too much. Look, we can be sympathetic. Their whole life had been auditory and oral. They'd not been able to see. Now they can see. How could they possibly shut up about it? I get that. But at the same time, it does show us that Christ's concern... On one hand, earlier, was he let the publicity go out. But in this case, it seems like there was a reluctance. And we do see this in the Gospels, that sometimes the publicity goes out and it seems okay, and other times he says, no, make sure no one knows about this. Because there's a guarding of the perspective of what the miracles are for. This would be in line with, for instance, the Pharisees coming to him and saying, well, show us a sign. I'm not going to show you a sign. You've got other signs. You've got the word. You've got the words of Moses. Why? Because they want signs for the wrong reasons. Now, if we go much beyond that, we would speculate as to how wrong they were not to tell. But the fact is, both good and bad publicity are leaking out. Now, it's not as if Christ is surprised because he's doing things that people are going to talk about. The fact is, they were healed. And the point is, is that we know that even as it goes out, that Jesus causes the blind to see, not just physically, but spiritually. Faith in Christ alone does this. Words alone are sufficient to cause relief of the blindness. This is what he does for us spiritually. Sin renders us incapable of making ourselves see. In fact, Paul says that we were once darkness. Now we are children of light. We're not even objects that grope around in darkness. We are actually proverbially dark. We can't make the light switch turn on. He does it by the word of his power. He says, Let there be light, and there is. When he speaks the gospel into your life, boom, he awakens you. For some, that boom may take over time. Maybe it's a rumbling, but at some point you are seeing him rightly. I'm a sinner. He is holy God and he has saved me. I will follow you. Very simple. The last account begins in verse 32. As they were going away, so there again, you have pretty immediate action, just like you've had these other ones while he was saying these things in verse 18, verse 27. And as Jesus passed on from there, and now as they are going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. On the heels of healing the blind, Jesus is brought a mute. Again, we have an account where caring friends or at least just some folks around him bring this mute to to Christ for healing. Now, in this account, there's no sense of faith at all because this guy is full of a demon. But we do see some faith with these friends who bring him along, much like those who lowered the paralytic through the roof. The demon possession has caused him to be mute, or at least that's what's implied in the text. And as soon as the demon is cast out, then he is relieved and able to speak. Now, in this account, it's pretty clear that the man doesn't exercise faith, and yet Christ so graciously and lovingly interrupts even what he 's not asking for, what I mean is he doesn't even say anything he doesn 't even say, "Jesus heal me." why? because he is ravaged totally by sin, but Christ interrupts Christ casts out the demon out of his gracious and sovereign mercy, and then the man speaks now the man doesn't even get to speak for himself. the crowd just starts speaking. they marvel there's no record of of the guy speaking. But the publicity is going out again. The crowd is saying, we've never seen anything like this before. But on the other hand, the Pharisees are saying, he's casting out demons by demons. You know, in its strictest sense, this is true blasphemy. Something that God calls good, but for men to call it evil, is blasphemy. They've seen the reality. They've seen the deliverance. They've seen his authority. They still can't bring themselves to submit to that authority. So what do they do? They claim that the authority is coming elsewhere. It must be from Satan. The publicity is going out. The divisions are being made. Camps are being formed. And all of this is leading to explicit authority to forgive sin Opposed authority by those who do not feel like they need sin forgiven. And eventually it will lead to his death. What we see in this though is that faith in Christ alone again relieves demonic oppression. It causes the tongue to loosen and speak. His word alone does this. We see no account where he's adding anything else to it except speaking and casting out the demon with his words. Sin is demonic. Sinners, whether we... You know, this doesn't sound very even church PC to say, but the Scriptures make it clear. If you're not of your father God adopted by grace through faith in Christ alone, then you're of your father Satan. Sinners, by and large don't really want Christ to help them because they don't want to admit their sinfulness. Christ is faithful and loving to interject Himself into our lives. Many of us have that kind of testimony. I wasn't even crying out to Him, and God caused me to cry out to Him him because He broke me. Others of us grew up in the church, we kept hearing the gospel, and eventually it just took, and we have been faithful, stumbling and everything along the way, but we have sought to be faithful for a long, long time. that's by God's grace, too. But it all has at its core the same thing. It's Christ alone with the word alone that puts faith in that person who, whether they're crying out for it or not, is necessary for their salvation. Christ does this because he's able to do this. And ultimately, sin is only removed by the one who conquered Satan and his demons on the cross. And that's Christ. Christ is the only one that can ultimately remove sin. Because it is a demonic oppression that will not be relieved by any other means. No other means. So in conclusion, I know the time away from us, but let me just say this. What Jesus can do and who Jesus is, is going public. There will be those who follow him and there will be those who oppose him. Those who follow Christ trust that he is able to heal them and cleanse them of all of their sinfulness... And to give them eternal life. Those who oppose him take offense that he would even speak such authority and even are offended by those who, who speak about his authority because they don't feel like they really are that sick with sin. So which are you? Again, we live in a culture that increasingly you're either going to follow him to the ends of the earth or you're going to oppose him. Is there any need that you've brought into this room today that's not covered by Christ's authority as it's been expressed in these miracles? Are you facing death personally or with a loved one? Christ is there. Now, we do not see or hear too much of Him raising the dead. But because He is raised from the dead, we have the promises that those in Christ will be raised. And will live forever. But there is nothing that his authority has not touched. That does not and cannot minister to you right now. What about this thing about going public? Is there someone you've not told the gospel to. Because you think there's no way they're going to respond. I remember feeling that about some uh, folks in high school. Oh man, no way are they going to follow Jesus. What Jesus are you talking about? am I talking about? This is the Jesus that raises the dead. Pretty sure they're not going to get up. Jesus walks in, speaks a word, they're walking. He is able. Who are you not publicizing the miraculous saving work of Christ to because you think he's not able? These acts prove that he is able. Are you hearing blind this morning? Maybe you're just not seeing it. 2 Corinthians 4, 4-6 through six says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Have you experienced the relief of your spiritual blindness? If so, how can you keep your mouth shut? Have you been healed of sin sickness that has isolated you, kept you from knowing peace and joy in this world, only to have it put in your heart by a sovereign and good God? How can you keep your mouth shut? When the publicity goes out, make no mistake, There will be those who will agree with you and there will be those who will oppose you. It is not your call to decide who's going to agree and who's going to oppose. It is God's work. It is only your job to go speak about a God in Christ who is able. He is able. And there's no one who's on the face of this planet that Christ is not able to save if he so chooses. You are to go and make it public that he can. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. It's true. It's good. It's sure. It reveals your authority over all things and all people. God, you have called us to experience your healing of forgiveness of sin and the giving of eternal life. And you've called us to actually go and share that in our district. Right where we are. Proclaiming these good things. Lord, that's going to be the ultimate design of life groups is that we share life together speaking your word and sharing that you have been able and you've proven yourself able and you have saved us and then we make it clear in our neighborhoods, and our communities. This is to go public. But Lord, we're not an incomplete story. We have the rest of the New Testament. We know that you took on our impurity and yet you remain pure. We know you took our penalty of sin. While not being a sinner. And you actually died where we deserve to die. But you rose from the dead. You did that. We could never raise ourselves. But you call us to be resurrected to new life if we simply have faith in Christ alone and allow His Word to simply be spoken into our lives with the Gospel itself that will awaken us that we are sinners in need of a Savior who has done everything and who is alive today, having completed everything so that we could be the dwelling place of God, clean and pure and alive. God, awaken some this morning, relieve their blindness. And Lord, for those of us who have been cause us to repent for not making public the most glorious miracle that we've ever known. That we would be forgiven for having been more excited about temporal things that happened to us, posting them on Facebook and showing the world, and yet, Lord, we have remained tight-lipped on the fact that we've been risen from the spiritual dead. It's not a guilt trip, God. It's about treasuring. It's about glorying. It's about loving You so much that we can't shut our mouths about it. There's not an engagement. There's not a birth announcement. There's nothing that compares to Christ having spoken into our lives and said, Rise. Be healed. Go and tell. Do so this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.